Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading researchers, authors, and clinicians discussing issues in attachment theory. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you here from Chadak with another episode. I'm really looking forward to sharing this interview with you, and I want to tell you a little bit about my guest today. Uh, Kate Haberman is going to be joining us, and she's an LISW, an MFT, and an RPTS, and she has has a practice in Iowa. It's called the Center for Foundational and Relational Wellness. And she works specifically with children who have attachment disruptions and traumatic experiences in their background. She's going to be talking with us very specifically today about object relations and attachment theory and these ideas and practices come from her collaborating with Holly Van Golden. So if some of you have heard Holly speak in the past, um, some of these ideas will be familiar to you, but also Kate has refined some of them and has uh, additional things to share with us about them. Um, she's also a certified TheraPlay practitioner in addition to being a registered play therapist supervisor, as I mentioned at the start. And in 2019, Kate was awarded Play Therapist of the Year by the Iowa Association for Play Therapy. She works with families, couples, parents, child dyads and others who have often experienced early developmental trauma. So I think you are really going to enjoy hearing from her today. So hang on, she will be coming right up. Supporting children and families who have experienced great loss and endured extreme trauma is a daunting task. At Chaddock, we have the experience and longevity to understand the type of support needed to keep the best and brightest engaged with this work. In July, the Knowledge Center at Chaddock will launch the next session of the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute for helpers who seek to be rejuvenated and revitalized in their work with children and families. This type of renewal and confidence is a natural byproduct of gaining specialized knowledge, advanced skills, consultation, guidance, mentorship, and most importantly, being in a community providing the experience of being seen and understood. We have designed an experience and a soft place to land where all of these needs will be met in one central place. For more information on the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute, to join the waitlist for more information or to sign up, visit tkcchaddock.org. Well, hello, Kate, and thank you for being here on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I shared a bit about your background before you came on, more your professional background. I often like to ask, is there anything in terms of your personal story that you would like to share that led you to doing this type of work that you're doing? Sure. Um, about 15 years ago, I became a foster parent. Um, mostly because of um, just seeing the need within the system with my job. Um, and 
my first foster placement um, was a two and a half year old and her seven month old brother. Um, and they had ha- had already five placements oh. by the time they came to us. And um, I remember maybe a few months um, into having them going to a training um, with Holly Van Golden and really just being blown away by it and recognizing and just really seeing it play out in um, the children that I was raising. Um, And then fast forward um, about four years, um, we were called to uh, be the concurrent home for an infant um, who had come from a family of 10 um, children who had all been terminated on. And so um, she came to us at six weeks old from the NICU and watching her develop um, and some of the challenges that she faced as an infant and as um, a toddler. And then as she got older, she's now 13. Um, seeing how she, um, how her body kept the trauma and the disrupted attachment um, when at six weeks old, she was put in a stable home. But the um, impact that the even the prenatal trauma had had on her um, and how that has manifested in her life, um, you know, throughout time has really shown me that um, what I've studied is so relevant and so helpful in understanding how to um, look beyond the behavioral impact of the attachment and the the wounds that the kids face um, and looking at what's going on with them prenatally and as infants and in those early stages and then how to repair those things as they develop chronologically. Yes. Yeah. Wow. So I, uh, I didn't know all that about you. So you, you certainly do have a personal story related to this work. And I so want to amplify your words about prenatal experiences, because I think there's still this myth out there that if you uh, adopt a child when they're a baby, in infancy. Sometimes even adoptive parents are there when a baby is born. I think there's lots of feelings on various sides about that, but sometimes that is the case. And I think there's this thought that, well, if I get them right after birth or very soon after birth, these are not issues I will have to worry about, you know, attachment or trauma or things like this. So, I really appreciate you even using the word prenatal experiences. Mm, definitely. <laughs> yes. It's, it's so often overlooked. And even like if we have like developmental stages of children or even developmental stages in adoption, right. it starts at birth. It, right. I've not seen any right. charts. Um where you just kind of pull them up for developmental stages or something like that. It's like the prenatal part is just forgotten about. Right. Right. And that's really where it all begins. You Mm -hmm. know, I mean, it really begins even before the birth mother gets pregnant, right? It's her regulation and -hmm. it's her regulatory system and her trauma that she carries and Mm -hmm. how that is carried over in utero 
and after the child is born. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. So thank you for just making mention of that. I think it's something that we need to keep talking about and keep hearing. So as you and I discussed this interview ahead of time, we talked about wanting in terms of your broad experience to focus in on object relations, theory and attachment. And for me, that started similarly as for you with hearing Holly Van Golden speak years ago at an attach conference. Kate, I don't even know how long ago. It could be 20 years. <laughs> I don't know. Right. And um, it and so she was speaking about something that we we want to spend some considerable time thinking about is permanence and constancy. And I knew those terms, you know, obviously from, you know, graduate studies and things like that and child development. But the way she was talking about them was really different than how I had been thinking about them. And so I think it would be great if we could start right there, like your understanding of those terms and the relevance, you know, of those to the work that we may be doing with children. I I very much agree that there's something about the way that Holly has taught it or even conceptualizes permanence and constancy that makes it so tangible to me and it makes it so clear. Yes. Um, it's not just sort of a theoretical approach that you're that you're sort of, you know, you know the idea, but you're not sure how to apply. Yes. Um, and my and over my time really working very closely with Holly and training with her um, and, and now collaborating with her, I've, I've really sort of taken some of those concepts and, br- and brought them into my work as a therapist and being able to use them um, even individually with kids. So, um, you know, just that foundational knowledge of permanence and, you know, the ability to take it for granted that, 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 attachment figure exists even when we can't see them Mm -hmm. and how does that show up as for an infant how does that develop for an infant and then what happens as that infant gets older Mm -hmm. you know even when that infant is 13 or 25 and what does it look like if they don't have a secure concept of permanence in their life Yes. So could you define those two terms, the, a basic definition of both of them, in case any listeners are unfamiliar with those terms, and then we can get more into specifics of the theory and the application of those terms in sure. work with children who've had attachment disruptions. Sure. So permanence is the capacity to take it for granted that the item or the person or the self exist when out of sensory context. So it's the idea that a person can hold the belief or the knowing that their their caregiver or even an object, if we're just talking about the root of object permanence, you know, that even when I walk away from it, even when I can't see that cup that dropped on the ground and I'm sitting in my my high chair, even when I can't see it, I know it still exists. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's a foundational developmental stage for infants. Yes. And, and 
we know about that and we think about that when we think of that, you know, infant playing that game of I'm going to drop my cup and eventually they start to look for their cup yes. or they start to look to the caregiver. You know, do you see my cup? Can you get my cup? And they start to learn how to engage in that um, predictability and that power in, you know, that they have in their voice and in their ability to engage. Um, and while they're developing that, they start to feel a secure sense of permanence because they start to recognize that even when I can't see you, I know you're still there. Mm-hmm. And, and so a child with very secure permanence has had repeated, repeated opportunities um, to practice that. So that the parent comes in and layers all of the sensory input to that child when that baby is, you know, two months old, six weeks old, that parent comes in when that child cries and the child experiences a layered sensory experience. So they start to smell the parent and they start to hear the parent and they start to feel the touch of the parent and they start to um, see, you know, the shapes and the images of the parent and all of those senses start to layer and they form a predictable template. Mm -hmm. So when a child has one consistent caregiver, one primary caregiver, that child has the opportunity to develop a very secure template. They know that when I hear my mom calling from the kitchen, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'll be right there with, with your bottle. They know what's going to happen next. So over repeated, repeated opportunities, they start to learn, I can hold the frustration or the insecurity of needing something. And I know that somebody will respond. And when that person responds, it'll be in this template, which allows me to start to trust in my voice, starts to trust in my caregiver. And I start to trust in the environment around me, that the environment around me is set up enough for me to get my needs met. And so all of that, that that huge concept of trust is being developed in utero and and hopefully it's it's developed and secure by about age one and a half to two. And so and so that's how permanency starts to develop. And we often take it for granted. That's such a concept that we don't think about or we don't cognitively remember happening. Yes. And I remember very clearly when I first heard Holly Van Golden talk about this. And then I immediately went to so many conversations with foster and adoptive parents when we were talking about potentially placing the child in residential treatment at Chadock. And, you know, we're always thinking about, I mean, that's another disruption that's traumatic. Like we're always thinking about like, if this does have as a very last resort have to happen, how can we make that better? And I remember so many parents saying, I don't know if it'll affect them because it's like it, out of sight, out of mind. Right. Now, I don't agree that it wouldn't affect them, but I'm I'm just sharing the example that the parents were feeling like if I am not physically present in front of my child, they don't think about me. They don't miss me. And it just was like a light bulb went off as to why 
the relationship was feeling that way for the parent. Right. Right. And it's so true. Right. And it's, and it's so hard as a parent to feel that it's, you know, have I not done enough and why don't they remember me or they should care about like my why, feelings? Why don't I matter to right. this child? Right. I hear so many parents say like, by now they should know. Mm-hmm. They've been in my home for two years or six years and they don't like, why can't they trust that I'm still here and I'm still going to love them and care about them? And the really hard part is that that concept of permanency is so fractured for that child that especially when there's stress of any sort and for children with a deficit in permanence or constancy, the trauma is the earliest stages of building a relationship. So often it's the part of the relationship that we take for granted. So as a parent, when I'm feeling frustrated and I expect you as a child to know something or to trust something, you know, maybe it's because I've taught it to you already or because it was just your birthday and I celebrated your birthday and two days later or two hours later, you're having a meltdown and you're pushing me away. It's that, that assumption of trust or that expectation of trust that triggers the child to feel the deficit of permanence. Yes. It's hard to emphasize enough how these early, to use the word you gave, fractures have such lasting impact. Because it does seem logically, okay, that happened at, you know, maybe in utero and at birth, but I've had this child now six or seven years. So why, 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 why isn't it paying off? Why isn't that changing that? And what, what do you say to parents? Right. You said that they say this to you. Right. So we do, I I do a lot of um, parents psychoeducation on this because I feel like once the parent can start to understand what's happening, it doesn't feel so personal. It doesn't feel so um, deliberate, you know, and, and the reason that a 13 year old or a six year old or a three year old is going to respond or react in a way that in my opinion, would say that there's a deficit in permanence is because we often are talking so much to the top of their brain, right? We're often using logic or using reasoning, or we're forgetting that dysregulation shuts down the very part of their brain that holds permanence. So as as they start to dysregulate and get anxious or get fearful or feel rejected, or feel angry, they have to go into the bottom part of their brain. They have to go into that, like, you know, the fight or flight mode, um, the security part of their brain. And that is where permanence is. So when they get there in their brain, the way they've established permanence or not established permanence is by a sensory experience. Mm -hmm. It's not by logic. Right. So the, or or, or talking, Right. Talking, cognitive, right. Mm -hmm. And often that talking part actually triggers it for many reasons. When we think of it in a sensory um, way that 
the the volume of our voice, the intensity of our voice, um, the shame, you know, all of those triggers bring you right back to that part of your brain that is that is so hyper receptive to sensory input. Yeah. So it's the idea that, you know, I need that sensory layering to develop mm-hmm. trust again. Yes. Yes. So that is permanence. And it's the idea that the, the item or the person still exists outside of sensory contact typically is, um, happens by one and a half to two years where you could rattle the keys and put them behind your back. And, um, one child will follow you and look behind you and to the younger child. Oh, the keys are no more. They mm-hmm. no longer right. exist. Right. So that's a working idea of that. Let's go on to constancy because this one I had a lot. This of, is even uh, harder, right? I know. <clears throat> yeah. Well, yeah. So so let's let's have uh, you share a definition, just a general definition of that. Sure. So constancy is the next stage. So once we've, we've worked on permanence, we hope to get to constancy. And what that looks like is it's the capacity to take it for granted that no matter what part of the self or another person you're experiencing, all the other parts of the other or yourself still exist. So what that means is even when mom is mad at me, she loves me. Mm-hmm. Or even when I'm angry, I'm lovable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It can be a pretty know, abstract concept. <laughs> well, and I, as I was rereading some of the information on these ideas that, that you sent, and there's so much talk about parts work out in the world right now because of internal family systems. But I heard about parts work in this way right. um, before that, do you, do you feel like there's any interface or do you feel like those are two completely different ideas? I, I'm sure there's interface because from somebody who really subscribes to this object relations attachment theory, I believe it's rooted in everything, right? Yes. So, but if, if we look at the parts work in, in really this early infancy and how to establish the concept of parts. And then as we work on, as we start to evolve into the internal family systems idea, those idea of parts evolve with that. So they become much more, I would say, even like full parts. So then we start to talk about, you know, the parts of the functioning system, the parts of the person, but in constancy, we're talking about the internal parts of a person. Mm-hmm. So the the foundational internal parts, the mm-hmm. idea that I am a whole person composed of all the different parts and those parts don't go away when one part is big. Yes. And I think that this is so important and you know, talking about these aha experiences, it would seem as though if a parent became more, even just stern, you know, slightly more firm with setting a limit or, or even maybe they just had really had it and they kind of lost it. 
everyone does. Um, but to the child, it was like they became this raging, dangerous right. maniac. Like I, um, am, I'm in total danger. Like this, this person is a monster. Right. Um, they're so mean. They're so horrible. They're so terrible. And this is how it would often manifest in, in my work that that other caring person was gone. Right. And that's terrifying. Right. Right. If, if that person is now gone and I have before me this this monster. Right. That's very scary. Right. And often a parent has difficulty allowing for all their parts to show up to the child because that parent has very little constancy in their own life. Right. So that parent is not able to hold all their parts in an integrated way. So when they need to give parts of themselves to their child, whether it's a teaching moment or a redirection or even an emotion, if they're not able to sort of tap into the other parts of themselves quickly and fluidly, then the child is not able to incorporate that internally as well. So, you know, when you think of the constancy part, it really is the mirror. The child is looking at a mirror of themselves that when my parent, their emotions get so big and so scary to me or dangerous or threatening or avoidant or shut down. And that, that like mode lasts more than three seconds, especially when you're two years old and it's not met with the comfort and the reassurance and the love and the value of the child in, in really like a one to three second time frame, if that child is not able to see that flip-flop happen repeatedly and regularly, they don't have that ability to integrate those pieces of their parent together. Mm -hmm. And in terms of what you were saying about the child, the same goes, you know, I'm either all good or I'm all bad. So right. if I have a bad behavior, I'm a terrible, awful, terrible piece of right. crap that you might get rid of. Right. And there's right. really no ability to hold on to that part of self either. Right. Exactly. And then that's the, you know, the reactive attachment piece, right? Is that mm -hmm. I believe I'm so bad and you are going to reject me now. So that's going to hurt even worse. And I'm so scared of that, that I'm going to protect myself and I'm going to reject you first. So one way of saying this, I believe, and I'm taking this from you, um, no matter what part is active or being experienced, however we want to say it, the other parts of self or the other continue to exist. Right. That is when you have constancy. Right. Um, what we're saying when you don't, it's just, well, the good part's gone, the safe sure. part's gone, the loving right. part's gone, and I'm left here with this terrible, dangerous person right. of myself or other. Right. Right. And, and we really, you know, we use the words, you know, kind of the idea of breast parent, witch parent, you know, it's the idea that when that two-year-old has, you know, taken cookies out of the cookie jar and they've, they've eaten those cookies and you can see the crumbs on their mouth and you say, I see that you've eaten those cookies and they look at you like, no, I haven't, which is developmentally very normal right? It's normal for them to not 
they don't have fully established constancy yet. So it's normal for them to say, Ooh, that's a scary thought. You're going to get mad at me. I wasn't supposed to do that. So my first developmentally appropriate thing is to deny that it happened. Mm -hmm. And in a healthy attachment, that parent typically would say, you can't have that many cookies. And that parent is typically smiling at them or lovingly looking at them because they're a two-year-old with chubby cheeks and big eyes and the oxytocin is, you know, flying off the rails. And, and that parent is able to say, I love you. And you can't have that many cookies. And that child learns in a developmentally appropriate stage, which all two, three-year-olds are doing is I'm going to push the buttons and I'm going to test the limits and I'm going to see what you're going to do about what I'm doing. And if that parent responds in a limit setting way, number one, because that security needs to be established, but also in a loving and accepting and I value you, and this is a teaching opportunity, then that child starts to learn, like I can be loved and I can test limits. I can do the developmentally normal things I need to do to progress and I'm still loved, even when all those parts of me are showing. Mm -hmm. But if a parent maybe meets that two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old behavior with harsh correction or shame or avoidance, you know, kind of like the silent treatment or really inconsistent limits or humiliation, that child really starts to split and feel like I can't do those developmentally appropriate things and still be loved. And most children, okay, all children are going to choose to be loved first because they need to. That's what survival tells them. And so then we see children what ha that have a lack of constancy, they do a lot of lying or a lot of blaming or a lot of avoidance because their survival brain is saying, no matter what I need to do developmentally, I need to be loved and I need to survive in this moment. So if blaming somebody else or denying something else means that I have a chance to be accepted and loved in this moment, I'm going to do that first. Yes. Yes. Oh, well, Kate, this has just been such a enlightening conversation, and I am excited for us to continue our conversation. Next week, we're going to be um, bringing in some practical ways to work on this. You know, now we've got the concept, the ideas, and right. the, the, the closing thought I'd like to give for this part of the conversation is if you look at the child developmentally in this space, say that two or three everything they're doing makes sense. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But we really have to look at the child chronologically at two and then developmentally, you know, maybe this is the stage they're supposed to be at. It matches with mm -hmm. their developmental stage. But then when they've had all of these traumatic experiences, their experiential age may be totally different. So right. we could be looking at a child who chronologically is six you know, if we look at the object relations theory, developmentally, they may be six months because they have very little permanence. And then they might have had so many experiences in their life that they're about 35. Yes. And that's what makes parenting 
a child with the lack of permanence or constancy so difficult because you literally are in that moment, you know, wondering, am I parenting a two-year-old? Am I parenting a six-year-old? Yes. Am I parenting a six-month-old? What's yes. going on here? Because yes. you're parenting all those ages at one time. Yes. Well, listeners, please join us next week as I continue my conversation with Kate Haberman. And it's been wonderful to have you here so far. Looking forward to continuing. Sounds great. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.